Welcome to Uphill Conversations, your ride-along partners for your emerging future. Everything in life worth having is uphill. You can't go uphill with downhill habits. It's time for another show with your host, Tim Figueroa and Megan Finner. Are you ready to be inspired? Hello, and welcome to Uphill Conversations. I'm your host, Tim. And I'm Megan. And we're glad you could join us as you are living your life and heading towards your emerging future. Hopefully you are eliminating any downhill habits and canceling out all agreements with limiting beliefs. And yes, it is true. You can be more, do more, and have more. Kind of like the Patriots going for another Super Bowl. (laughs) They are. That's awesome. Yep. Could you remind our listeners and not just me um, what the date is of the Super Bowl? The Super Bowl is February the 4th, it says, because okay. Monday's the 5th. Okay. So that is when you can watch Tom Brady, the low draft pick, mm-hmm. slow running, mm-hmm. great quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe in athleticism. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that. <laughs> he has a great mind mm-hmm. and a great arm. Yeah. And he'll beat you with his mind. Yeah, he and believes. Then he punishes you with his arm. <laughs> That's what I think. He beats you with his mind yeah. and punishes you with his arm. And even though I'm a Notre Dame guy, he's a Michigan guy with your brother, he Tommy, if oh, you're yeah. listening. Oh, yeah. He knows. Like, Go Blue. Why doesn't Tommy... That's what you have why to say. Doesn't Go he, Blue. Why doesn't he pick New England? Tom is like a legend. Well, he might against the Eagles. Possibly. Right? Tommy might. Do you hear that silence? <laughs> He doesn't like the Pats, like literally. I don't know. I don't know if he does. That's your brother. Well, my brother. So my brother likes the the um, Bears. He's a a Broncos guy. Oh uh, well, Tommy, if you're listening, whatever friendship we could have made is not going to happen. <laughs> so moving on. dot org. So do you think? Do, I bet that Tom Brady gets up every day and he's like, you know what? I think I can be more, do more, and have more. I think he does. I think he does. Well, he does. And he <laughs> just goes, and I'm gonna, it's in the way that I use it. Mm-hmm. He's like one of those guys like, okay, so what? I can't run like this guy and that guy. I can't. I don't have that. I, I know what I do have. Yeah. And he just shows up with it. And he's married to Giselle. I literally was going to say, like, a hot <laughs> wife. That's, like, what I thought. You know, you know what so, I do have? I'm married to Giselle. Yeah. He could go, and Giselle? Oh, that's my wife. <laughs> yeah. By the way. <laughs> By the way, just in case you were wondering... Well, next. <laughs> all right. So- and I've got five <laughs> Super Bowl rings. Five. So you can put and them all I in bet- one hand right now. What's but- he going to do? He's going to put it's- on- He's got to pick a finger. He's got to He's got to pick. That's the thing. And then nobody's even close. Yeah. There is no other quarterback. Do you quarterback think he ever just like puts them on? And I think of- he does. He probably like gets out of the shower, you know, kind of, like- he gets out, has his robe on and goes, I'm going to put all my rings on. He puts on. all of them on and eats like a bowl of ice cream. And then sits with Giselle. Yes. And, sa- and then holds up one hand and goes, hey. He's like, what? Yeah. And she makes more money than him, by the way. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, rock on. Girl power. <laughs> um, so we have a great guest for you today. but So that means before- I'm like your Giselle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I look just like it. Look at my hair. You do look just like her. Sure do. Yeah. I'm like Giselle and you're Tom. <laughs> For the podcast. Yeah, for the podcast. Yeah, it's like, the, yeah, what well, I'm yeah, saying well, she's, in our... she's kind of like the more, like, creative one. He's kind of like the straight-laced, like, guy. Just 
Well, you don't run Logical. fast. The whole point I brought that up is oh, I think I don't. she cannot run him. <laughs> you, you I'm don't slow run as fast. molasses. Uh, okay, so great guess, but before we get and to don't that, don't worry, I'll delete this. I have a no. You got to leave it. It's great. Um, I have a question for Tim, and I've been holding this one. Holding it like for so, <laughs> ransom or like, no, I've had like, like a, a burp list. you need to release? No, I had a list of like six, and this is the one that I've been holding to answer. So I'm excited because it's, well, the only one left on my list. I have to find some more. Uh, so, Tim, if a crystal ball could tell you anything about your future, what would you want to know? Not where I'm going to go and what I'll be doing. But who will be with me? I like it. Because you're a relationship guy. Yep. That's that's it. I just want to know who's going to be there. Because it's not about who's going to serve me. I I equally am interested. I believe in a yoke. I believe in two people pulling, working in together. And I like a yoke. I believe in that. And I believe that. The reason you're yoked is if one, if you have two oxen and one falls, the other can pull it up. Mm-hmm. And that's all I want to, I want, I want to be people that that's what they would do. If I fall, they lift. If they fall, I lift. If we pull together, we do. But we don't, I don't want people that just lay down. I just want to like, I want to be, I want to be equally yoked because my desire is full of drive and pull. And that's that's all I care about. Who's with me, and who can I be with? Good answer. So our guest today is uh, Dr. Melanie Greenberg. She is a practicing psychologist, author, speaker, and life slash business coach. Uh, she has a lot of experience in her field, and um, she's a researcher. And her big thing that we talked to her about today is she is a recognized expert on stress management. Yeah, and so she had to talk me off a cliff. No, I'm just kidding, she didn't. <laughs> but no, I like that because stress they, deals with your emotions. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I got into was a lot of people, especially clinical types, they don't do the mind and the emotions. Mm-hmm. Like they won't talk. I mean, they'll bring it up. But I challenged her with some of that. And I don't have her degree or her pedigree, which, and I'm not saying that to diminish myself. I study it, I'm fascinated by it, and I read it, and I learn, but I like how when I engaged her with those types of things, she really, you could tell that she doesn't just let her, it's not just about her mind, Mm -hmm. it's she's looking at what else is going on inside of her Mm -hmm. with that, and so she really does a good job helping to negotiate those, you know, if it's like a it's like a car. You have, you know, the right side of your car and the left side, and there are four tires, and they're all—they're both making a groove in the road. It's like she brings that together. Like mm-hmm. you're the vehicle, and you have this mind, and you have these emotions, and it's like there are two tracks to it. And she really helps to bring alignment to it. And mm-hmm. I—that's what I really appreciated the most. Yeah. And you can just tell she's very. Um, um, how do I put it? I can just tell she's got a lot of relationship in her. I feel like she's um, like she, I could tell that she's not just going like when I'm talking with you or whatever. She's not just going, oh, what's going on in your brain? Mm-hmm. She's looking at you as a person and like I can just see that. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate that because the mind is an incredible thing. It's vast. It's huge. It's expansive. And emotions are so hard to track mm-hmm. and they change so much. Yeah. 
but she really does a good job bringing those together and giving you some practical things to take away, which is good for someone like me who is a very cognitive. I'm very visionary and I use my brain a lot. Mm -hmm. And then also I'm a passionate, emotional person. Mm -hmm. I really care. And it's hard sometimes to bring those two worlds together. But just even that conversation, I just really appreciate because it, it helped me. Yeah. And I, I, I think one thing that I picked up is in answering her different questions, she mentioned curiosity at least two, if not more times, as a way to sort of work with a stressful situation is to remember to be curious. Um, and I think that's, you know, you don't, you can be curious about um, the experience, about life, about what's coming next, rather than you know, just kind of going toward that negative, um, which is sort of the natural um, disposition. So yeah, really enjoyed having her on the show. And um, I know you guys are going to enjoy it. So please remember to go out and rate and review the show. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, we always love to hear from you. So you can find us at our website, uphillconversations.co. You can also find us on Facebook, Uphill Conversations, Twitter, at Uphill Convo and Instagram at Uphill Convo. And we hope to hear from you. Yeah. And we hope that you get a Patriots jersey. So <laughs> moving on, though, without any delay, that's me um, using my. Go Pats. My, yeah, my, yeah, Go Pats. Yeah. My mental ability to suggest something to you. <laughs> but anyways, without any further delay, let's jump into this wonderful conversation with um, a, a just a, a great, great guest, Melanie Greenberg. Welcome to the show, Melanie. It is so great to have you with us today. Uh, it would be awesome if you could tell our guests a little bit about who you are and uh, how you're showing up in the world. So I'm a clinical psychologist, an author, and a blogger, and I'm showing up in the world trying to help people be more mindful and compassionate and helping people to grow and, and move from feeling stuck to having a growth mindset and, and finding new hope and possibilities in life. That, so that is awesome, but that sounds like a pretty big undertaking. <laughs> You know, so I mean, and I know, so our, our guests, um, we, um, Melanie was really gracious and sent us a copy of her book, The Stress Proof Brain. Um, and so obviously it's all about stress and the impact that that has on you sort of mentally, physiologically, and um, the impact and how to better manage it. So Melanie, out of curiosity, what is it that got you so interested in the subject of stress? So I grew up in South Africa under the last years of apartheid and there was a lot of, of trauma in the society and a lot of disruption and serious societal problems. And so I think that got me interested in, in how events outside of yourself that you have no control over can affect you, but that you have to find a way to cope and to kind of to make your own path through that. And so that, that's how the interest in stress started. And then I ended up coming to the U.S. I worked as a professor of, in health psychology, and I became aware of the mind-body connection and stress and the brain and how our brain goes into fight or flight and how, how much that influences our behavior, that we can get into panicky kind of states. And so that, that was another dimension for me. 
And so I wanted to, you know, apply all of this knowledge to helping people manage stress and becoming resilient. Um, well, Melody, I love um, what you're talking about. And by the way, South Africa, I have two friends that um, did a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff there musically. One is Israel Houghton and uh -huh. the, the other one is Nick Katsia. Do you know Nick? You know, I don't, but I haven't lived there for a while. Uh, okay. Yeah. No, this was in that time of the apartheid. So Nick Katsia did a lot of music at the end of that. He did a lot of stuff like very, lots of instrumental stuff, very good arranger and made a lot of music. And of course, Jonathan Butler. Um, are you familiar with him? The guitar player? Fantastic. You know, not as much either. That's okay. Um, That's fine. But <laughs> there was a lot of music and a lot of, you know, theater and sort of there was creativity around that time. Right, like, right. So I'm a big up. I'm a big mind person and I love what you said, you know, the things that you're talking about, especially the, you know, my things are like the neuroplasticity, but like most people don't understand that. And mm -hmm. just the whole thing of the fight or flight and um, and you know, and when you talk about stress, I think stress is a product of people having a fixed mindset. That's what I believe. I believe because they're so, you know, and for lack of better terms, hell bent on staying focused on what they see and what they see and what they accept as it is or the truth that they've known. And so they try to maintain that truth. Mm -hmm. Can you mm -hmm. speak a little bit about that to help people to know? Because that's what happens because you get so stuck on that. It's not an evolution of the truth that you have. It's mostly a truth that you're trying to either reclaim or, or regain or to try to keep without adjusting. And so ultimately that can elevate your stress. And so because you don't mm -hmm. understand what that does, and then when you add the emotional component, which your emotions do not have the ability to reason, your mind does. But they do need to be in relationship with one another. Can you talk a little bit about how people end up in the stress zone because of the fact that they have the fixed mindset versus the open mindset? Sure. So, you know, one definition of stress that you can think of is that you're facing new demands that challenge your ability to cope. And so your existing skills might no longer work for the situation and it kind of calls on you to develop new skills or new attitudes. But physiologically, we're wired to respond to stress like our ancestors trying to escape tigers that were going to eat them in the bush. And so, you know, we grew up in, in tribes and we have this part of our brain called the amygdala that goes into fight or flight or fight, flight, freeze. And it's a very quick emergency kind of response to stress that would help us get away from a tiger. So, you know, we face a new challenge in life. Our first response would be to, you know, to see a threat and to get all hyped up and, you know, have our breathing get shallow, um, have our heart start racing and not be able to think clearly because it's almost like that fight or flight part hijacks the brain to help you survive. If you have to get away from a tiger, there's no point in, you know, spending time thinking. You just have to, you know, get out of there. So there's a, there's a mismatch between the way our brain's wired and actually the demands of stress in, in modern society which, you know, are more cognitive and they're more existential. And, you know, we have to, we have to develop more sophisticated skills to survive. 
And so there's another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which is more of our executive functioning and the thinking center. But the information takes longer to get there. So we have to slow things down and let the information get to our prefrontal cortex so that when, when we're in the amygdala, when we're in fight or flight, we see a very narrow view of things. It's, it's a threat. We, we just primed to see things as a threat. And you know, we're trying to maintain the status quo, not to lose anything. Um, but when we can get into our prefrontal cortex, we can get a much broader view of the situation. And, you know, and therefore we can come up with more innovative solutions. And part of the innovative solutions is, is the idea that we are not stuck the way we are with a fixed mindset. We aren't stuck with our existing skills or abilities, but we have the capacity to, to learn from even difficult experiences and to expand who we are and grow new skills. Right. So it's like, I'm sure you, you understand football, right? Uh, soccer. So much. It, yeah. it, well, I mean, but, but the game slows down for the people when they become, when they go to a pro level versus when they were kids growing up. Right. But then right. to go to that next, every level, the game speeds up is what they say. But mm-hmm. once you're in the game at the highest level, the game slows down. And so uh-huh. it's kind of like the huh. instinctual part where we need to learn to slow things down and to be able to think about them in a more mindful way um, in, in order for us to move away from a fixed mindset. But how much do the emotions overtake your ability to make decisions and think with an open mindset? Because maybe there's a demand for change. Maybe there's a demand for, you know, what you've been doing is not what you should be doing. But because of how we have that fight or flight, so we kind of reduce ourselves down to that more instinctual level. Mm -hmm. And then, but we may, if we could slow it down a little bit, sometimes we have to like intentionally, you know, spend more time with it in order to slow it down, to think better, like slow the game down of football, right? We're going to slow it down. Mm -hmm. But the only way you're going to do it is you have to be in it. But then there's the emotional Mm -hmm. part. How much do the emotions play in keeping people stuck in a fixed mindset? You know, I think they, do, am I making sense? Yeah, I think they, they play a great deal, um, especially anxiety and fear and sometimes anger. So, you know, when, you, when you're feeling anxiety, there's a sense of, of threat or, you know, maybe even you can think of the, you know, that the ground is, is moving under you. And so people tend to cling to stability. And they, t- you know, they tend to be scared of losing what they already have rather than being able to be forward thinking and curious and letting things unfold. And so anxiety, I think, gives, not only does it give us a narrow perspective, but it stops us from seeing those possibilities for growth because we're kind of in a mindset where we're focused on maintaining what we have and not losing something. And we're also, we're fear driven. We're kind of envisioning, you know, negative possibilities. If we like change is scary for our brains. And so when you're having too much anxiety, you know, change is too scary. You just start worrying and predicting all the negative things that can happen. And so, that, you know, all of that keeps you stuck from moving and 
you get you get stuck kind of in the fear. And, and Melanie, so this is kind of interesting. I, I was at an event last night and ran into someone uh, that I worked with about three years ago. And so my background, um, I was in sort of the client services world of a marketing advertising agency. And, you know, that's yeah. that's a really fast-paced, sort of high-stress, high-demand um, mm-hmm. environment. And so, you know, you mentioned something in the book, basically saying your thoughts, feelings, and actions can actually change the structure of your brain over time and that, you know, too much stress can lead your brain to automatically become more reactive with less ability to calm down your stress through a logical thinking. And so when you're working with people who, you know, for me, you know, the, the person I saw yesterday, he, he actually made a comment about me being type A, um, <laughs> it, which is funny because I haven't seen him in probably three years. But how do you work with people to, for lack of a better term, reprogram or alter that structure that they've developed uh, for, you know, working in that type of an environment or, you know, really... Uh, having that on a consistent basis, how do you work with them so that they can become more mindful and really reduce that overall level of, of what I would call negative stress? So in my practice, I try to, you know, educate people about how the brain works. And in particular, that they said we have a capacity for neuroplasticity And neuroplasticity means that our brain has all these billions of neurons that are all interconnected. And sometimes they can get interconnected into very fixed patterns. So we get get stuck in these sort of, you know, these fixed ways of doing things and seeing things. But if you can repeatedly um, tolerate practicing a new way of seeing things or, you know, tolerate trying a new behavior, but you have to stick with it and do it over and over and over again, eventually over a period of months and years, you can actually change the wiring in your brain so that the negative pathway becomes less strong. For example, the negative thinking pathway, the pathway, you know, where somebody, my client might be criticizing themselves or, you know, sort of saying, oh, you can never do this and, and, you know, this won't work and and you're going to mess things up. You can actually, you can actually kind of take the attention and the energy away from that pathway and try to build a new pathway of, you know, like, yes, I can, one step at a time. Let me focus on my past successes. You know, um, so so it's like tr- repeatedly trying new ways of thinking and behaving and also practicing mindfulness, meditation, or just a mindful attitude to life. Uh, mindfulness is about staying in the present and also a, a kind of a sense of, of connection with our own experience that isn't as fear-based. Um, so we learn to replace fear with curiosity in mindfulness. Or, and we can learn it from meditation, but it's also an attitude to living. And so I might teach my clients you know, more about a lot of these negative thoughts and, and negative scripts come from the past, um, you know, that, that we may have helped us survive in our childhood environments, you know, where we faced certain kinds of families or, or you know, we had to get along with our parents or whatever, or, the, with the, or survive bullying or whatever it was. And um, mindfulness can help you, you kind of, you know, bring all of your, your body and your mind back into the present. And then you can sort of more mindfully, you know, decide to be curious and let things unfold and try new directions and, 
and, um, you know, have a more sort of compassionate, accepting attitude towards yourself and your experience. And that opens the possibility for growth and moving forward. And, and, and another thing that you, you kind of mentioned to go along with mindfulness is, and, and I can't remember who you attributed it to, but attention allocation strategies. So that whole idea of bringing people back to the present, because, you know, when you're stressed, your mind immediately goes to the future, what's going to happen, what's going to go wrong, that's where the anxiety comes from. So another thing that you talk about is grounding. Uh, could you explain a little bit to our listeners about what that is exactly? Sure. Grounding is a very simple strategy, but it's, but it's very, very effective. What happens is when we get stressed, we can sometimes get swung out of our kind of, you know, adult mindset into these more fearful states or more avoidant states or, or into a kind of fight or flight, you know, where we're, where we're kind of bursting out in anger. And so grounding is just beginning mind to notice that's the mindfulness part you know to notice when you're being swung off balance by stress and that could be you know interpersonal stress like your boss criticizing you um, or it could be financial stress so when you notice that you can no begin to notice what's happening in your body like your heart's racing faster your thoughts are racing or you feel a tightness in your chest and then you can just deliberately bring yourself back to the present moment or the safety of the present moment by just focusing on feeling your feet on the ground, feeling your body in the chair, and maybe even just looking around the room and, and describing three things that you see. So it's taking you out of that whole, you know, fear-based mindset that's fed by the past, and it's just bringing you, you know, back into your body, into this, into the safety that you're here now as an adult. You're not in those scary situations anymore. You know, um, Melanie, um, you know, I, I try to encourage people to do that, put their feet on the floor, like sit up in your chair or lean back, put your feet on the floor, put your hands on your thighs, sit there and scan. What do you feel? What does it feel like? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Just allow yourself to go through that process because what happens most of our decisions we know are made subconsciously. Right. They're already made. And the the challenge is that most of the times we think that that decision is the right one because mm -hmm. we already made it. Because it's programmed. It, uh -huh. Right. It's programmed. It's already in our category that we it's it's filed away in a drawer. So like I I tried to um I did this with one of my children the other day. I told them that inside of you is like file cabinets, like big metal, <laughs> big metal file cabinets with all this I stuff. Love that. You, uh -huh. you know, and so right now there's a lot of them. There's an unlimited amount of file cabinets for you, and you've yet to fill them. Here's what I encourage them. I said start filling them well now. Uh -huh. Like, in other words, put only the right, try to do your best to put the best things in those file drawers. Unfortunately, because what will happen is you're going to put wrong things in there. It's almost like a person like not alphabetizing something and it's out yeah. of order and it ends up somewhere else. you got a different thing yeah. filed in there. And so what's going to happen, that becomes a part of your thinking and it's going to find a friend in the way you're feeling. And your brain is only programmed to collect what's there. And mm -hmm. in most situations, our subconscious already feeds what it is our decision is. 
And mm-hmm. it is based on those fears. It's based on what we've experienced. It's based on our safety. It's based on our comfort. And what we really need to do is be able to sit down, be still, and feel what's going on, what's happening. Scan my whole system, right? To be able to yeah. know that this is what's going on. Not, not every situation is a tiger attacking, right? We know that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what we won't do, though, is we won't allow our conscious mind to engage what our subconscious mind has suggested. Can you talk a little bit about that, like how to bring the two of those together? Sure. And, you know, those are, that's really good that you're working with your child with that. It's good to start young, then you can shape your brain in that, you know, in, in that way so it doesn't get us programmed to the negative. Um, I mean, I just, I like your analogy of a, of a filing cabinet. And I think um, one way I talk about this to clients is the idea that we, we do have this subconscious programming. And part of it is like our thinking. We can't control our thinking. Um, you can't necessarily control what thoughts come into your head. You could have, you know, very negative thoughts and very destructive thoughts. Um, so, you know, what do you do about that? A lot of people get kind of very ashamed of their negative thinking or their self-critical thinking. But um, the idea is, you know, if you can ground yourself in the present, you can you can have the same thoughts, but you can change your relationship to them. So it's like if you can imagine, say the thoughts are all the different files you, you know, you can't stop like another, I think a better analogy might be a supermarket. Like you go to the supermarket and you can't control what's on the, what the, they put on the shelves. You know, there's all different foods that you can't control what, what's there, but you can control what you put in your shopping cart. You know, you don't have to put all the junk food in your shopping cart. So I, I use that same analogy with clients with, you know, you can't necessarily control the contents of your mind or what goes through your head but you can control which ones you choose to focus on and empower and which ones you may need to just let float on by you know, and find some distance from. Um, so if you can put all the good food or, you know, the good thoughts into your shopping, if you can focus on those and build on those, um, that you can't necessarily control your subconscious mind, but it's a way of, of, ha- of being able to move forward despite your subconscious mind and letting it be there for the ride along with you. And I, I think that's a great illustration, and I think that was very well put. And I, in, in what I notice is that, you know, number one, that's the most important thing that a person will actually engage them and realize you can't control it. I tell people it's like wild horses. Like if you, if we were to catch, so Melanie, say you and I were out in the wild west, you know, and, and we caught five Mustangs and they're wild, right? Well, what they say is you, you don't try to just throw them in a pen. What you do is you put them on a long lead and let them run, but you anchor uh-huh. them to something and exactly. let them come back to you. So let them come and go. And then the ones that will keep, they'll keep. And then some, you know, that you'll have to release, but what do you do to help a person that says, what I've noticed is people will keep what they need to let go of and let go of what they should maybe keep. Mm-hmm. So part of it, I think you can do mindfulness practices. So one practice is called leaves on a stream. You can just imagine yourself standing by a stream. And every time you have a thought, you can imagine putting it on a leaf and letting it float on down the stream. And, you know, you can have different, you can have a, a, a kind of a big dead leaf, you know, for, take, for a, horrible, for a d- difficult thought, or you can have a big bright red leaf. Um, 
So you can then pay attention to which ones grab you in and which ones it's hard to, you know, let float on by. And but you can and you can practice letting them float on by. So that's more the second part about, you know, just letting your thoughts be there and, and understanding you are not your thoughts. And um, you know, it's just content flowing through your mind. It doesn't have to have any special power. You can make choices. Um and then the other part is, you know, the kind of the clinging to the negative. Sometimes people can have, you know, feel very insecure and, and not feel lovable, like they're not worthy or they're not lovable. And that can be very subconscious. It can go into, it doesn't matter who you are. You can be a CEO, you can be, you know, the greatest achiever, but most of most people still have some level of that insecurity. And um, with letting go of that, sometimes I think it's just understanding, you know, where that came from, how did that, you know, often it's from some kind of childhood experience and then you have to fight it. It's like, you can call it your, your negative schema or your negative script and you can fight your negative script. It's like, you don't have to go with it. You can try to deliberately come up with um, evidence that's, that's contrary to it or that just confirms it. So if you, you're always thinking you're a failure, you can, in those moments, deliberately think about, you know, well, what are some things I've done well in the past? What are some things that worked for me? You may, and you do, every time you have that thought, you deliberately bring in the positive to mind. So that's another really concrete way you can work with that. So in talking with just that whole idea that, um, you know, my thoughts aren't me or that, you know, whatever's happening in, in my mind and body at the moment, like that doesn't necessarily define me as a person. But I think that there's this fear that people have um, to face those emotions sometimes and to really embrace them. We, we had a guest um, quite a few episodes ago and she said, you know, you really got to just, you know, get, roll around and get dirty with your emotions and let them kind of go through you. But I think especially in the American um, society and culture, and especially when it comes to men, it can be really hard to tell someone to embrace their emotions and feel it and let it run its course. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what, what kind of encouragement, um, can you give to people to do that? Because I think that there's that idea, especially that once you let that emotion in, you know, you're not going to be able to control it or stop it. Yeah, I think, I think it's very much that idea. Um, and you're right, especially men are socialized that way. But I think anybody, you know, who's been through some kind of trauma or difficult childhood, or, you know, the emotions can come up very intensely. And, you know, it is frightening for people. Um, but then sometimes, you know, people shut down the emotions so that when the emotions come up, it's, it's, it's almost like it's, it's going through a, veil, a pressure cooker and it's, it's even more intense than it would be. Um, I think for me, it's part of it is, is to name and describe the emotion. So it's like you, you're not, you are not the emotion. You can, you can mindfully look at the emotion and what you might do is you might notice where it is in your body. Um, and then you might give it a name. Like, so, so where are you feeling this? You can, the minute you're saying I'm feeling this in my chest or I'm feeling this in my throat, it's like, you're not, you're not, swept away by that emotion anymore. There's a bit of grounding just in, in being able to name it like that, to identify where it is. And then you can give it a word, is that anger, is that fear? And then you can just say to yourself, I'm feeling fear in my chest. 
Let me just sit with it. Sometimes you can use the breath and send some breath into that area, you know, to open up, see if any space opens up. Um, and then you can have some kind of an image maybe for yourself of containing the emotion. Like you might ask that emotion what it needs. And then you, you can imagine, you could imagine putting it in a container and like sealing the container. That might be one kind of image you can use. Um, or if you can just experience the emotion away from the whole negative judgment script, it can also make the emotion more manageable. And breathing, breathing can activate your parasympathetic nervous system. So that can put the brakes on the fight or flight. It can calm it down physiologically. So, so, I mean, Melanie, I love this because I'm fascinated by this. Now you <laughs> obviously have your uh, PhD. <laughs> I, no. I'm not, <laughs> but I read <laughs> I constantly. I, I literally read about this all the time. And, and for me, what fascinates me is I witness it all the time and I struggle with it because I see it. Um, I would say that my belief is that I believe that God, I believe in uh, an all creating God who, mm -hmm. who gave us gifts and things. And mm -hmm. I believe there are spiritual gifts and in mine, one of mine is discernment and I can sit in a room and I can see people suffocating emotions. Mm -hmm. Like when you said, it's not put it in a container and seal it and kill it. It's to put it in the container, engage it. And like, I love what you said, ask it what it needs because mm -hmm. it's got to engage with the brain. I still believe the mind and the emotions. I tell people there's a thinker, feeler and a chooser, uh -huh. but you're going to be stuck between the thinker and the feeler when your chooser is left with confusion. And what right. you've got to do is allow yourself to, and I love what, I mean, I've never heard that before. So I'm like, I'm going to take mm -hmm. that from you, <laughs> like <laughs> to ask it what it needs. So mm -hmm. what happens when a person deprives the emotion and they don't answer it or they don't ask it the question to give it what it needs? What, what can happen and what can that do to the way you think? That's a really good question. I mean, most of our emotions, um, they either, you know, a valid response to the situation. They kind of, you know, they have a self-protective and they can give us information about something that isn't right or that we need to react to. Or they can be something from childhood, from your subconscious. That's maybe an overreaction. Um, nevertheless, I mean, the basis of our emotions is often drives that helped us survive in childhood, like fight Fight, flight, freeze. When you're a child, it helps you survive or, or, or comply. You learn, you know, how to get along with people or you learn how to escape. Or, and as a child, you maybe have to escape and avoid some emotion because it's too much if you're stuck in a really bad environment. Um, but as an adult, you don't, you don't have to be so driven by those drives anymore. So often the emotion is some function, something it's trying to do that it perceives a danger to you. And it's trying to give you information or it's trying to somehow protect you, even though it's misguided or it might be an overreaction. So by asking it what it needs, you can, you can maybe get to that underlying piece of how it's, you know, how that piece is trying to protect you, but not doing it right. And then you can try to turn to your, what you call the chooser. I might call it your healthy adult part. You can turn to that other part and see if it can, you know, can it kind of take the emotion under its wing um yeah and can it, can it 
take that message into account, but at the same time, choose, you know, try to have a, a more mature response based on that information and other information as well. And, and so, so Melanie, one thing um, that you talk about in, in your book that um, struck me was you talk about perfectionism and um, this whole idea that perfectionists have conditional self-esteem. So that means that um, for our listeners, they can only really like themselves when they do well. And mm-hmm. they often feel like imposters or frauds and live in constant fear of being exposed as incompetent. So I guess dig a little bit deeper into that for us, because I think some people will say they're perfectionist and say it in a positive way. Some people will say, you know, that's a weakness of theirs. Um, Dig a little bit deeper into that and then tell us, you know, how do you work with people to, um, to move away from that idea um, of perfectionism? So the perfectionism, I think it has one healthy piece and the healthy piece can be, you know, having high standards and trying and doing things well, um, you know, and trying to do the best job you can. And I think that can help you in life to be successful. Um, but there's also unhealthy pieces to it. And some of the unhealthy pieces are, you know, when the perfectionism keeps you stuck and um, starts defeating the purpose, you know, rather than being able to be productive, you're kind of getting stuck checking things over and over again or stuck in self-doubt. Perfectionism can sometimes make you doubt yourself and second-guess yourself or you can feel like a fraud or an imposter. And, you know, that can get in the way of, of having the real confidence and passion to do whatever it is your mission in life is or to spread your message. And so some of the ways I might work with people who are perfectionistic would be um, perfectionism is often black and white thinking. You know, it's like you, it's either perfect or it's nothing. So, you know, looking for the gray, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, what can be good enough? Um and also the idea that sometimes you can make choices. You can say no to the good opportunity to make room for the great opportunity. And how, you know, we, so it's more about, you know, having, we only have so much time or energy and, you know, how is the perfectionism maybe taking away from your health and happiness? And, and you know, how do you, cha- how do you prioritize those? Because in the long run, you'll be more successful if you, you have to, you know, if you take care of those as well. And then also to replace your critical attitude towards yourself with to try to find some compassion for yourself, you know, to understand maybe in, in certain circumstances, it's just, it just can't be perfect. It's, it's the cost of trying to be perfect would be too high to you. So what price do you pay personally for trying to be perfect and how can you approach it in a more compassionate way? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when you think about different people who have, um, things that maybe aren't the way that they would like them to be. Or um, you talk to people and a lot of times I feel like all, you know, you, you just hear, it's just a laundry list of problems. You know, these, this is a problem and this is a problem and this didn't go my way. And, and obviously those can be stressful. There can be a lot of things in life, some within your control and some completely out of your control um, that occur to you. 
But, you know, it was interesting. I was on a, a tour of actually a, a detention center the other day and I saw a sign hanging up and it said, if everybody took all their problems and threw them in a pile in the middle of the room, you would rush to get your own back. <laughs> so, so, I mean, so and, and that really struck me because I think that so often we get so wound up in everything that's wrong and all of our problems that we forget to to look at the the good things and the positive things but how how can people work on just I think perspective and maybe reframing things um, in their mind and sort of remind themselves of that you know if 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 everybody threw their problems in the middle of the room you would rush to get your own back <laughs> that's a really good saying um one of the things I might say to my clients is is can you broaden the view? Can you take take a step back and broaden the view? So, you know, when you focus on your problem or you focused on what you, your little mistake that you made, it's like also very narrow. But what if, you know, imagine almost like a picture that you take, you take, a diff, you take a step back and you're looking at this from far away. This is only a, a small piece of your life, this difficult part. And think about all the other parts that are there, you know, that are good, that aren't stressful right now. Like maybe, you, you know, your, your family is going well, even though you're having stress at work. And then the other part is um, to help. Sometimes you have to train people to focus on the positive because our brains are naturally wired to the negative. Because, again, you know, it's more, it was more important to our ancestors to get away from the tiger than to smell the flower. Because if you didn't get away from the tiger, there'd be no you to smell the flower. You'd be eaten. So... We have to actually train our brains to be focused on the positive. It often doesn't grab us as much naturally. And so writing a gratitude diary would be one idea that, you know, at the end of every day, you just write down three things that you're grateful for. Um, and that can be a way of training your mind, you know, to kind of t to, to have a broader perspective and also a more positive, hopeful perspective on things. I, I mean, uh, I love that, that you're so busy running from the tiger, you can't smell a flower. Mm -hmm. Once again, <laughs> once again, that's going in my pocket. <laughs> I'm going to keep that one. Um, so smelling the flower, you know, let's, I'd like to dig into that a little bit as well, because I mean, mm -hmm. are you saying, I'm just asking, are mm -hmm. you, are you saying that I mean, of course, no matter what condition we're in and no matter where we are in our lives, there's always something good to be found. But you're not suggesting or implying, I don't think, that don't sacrifice the best or better for, you know what I mean? Don't, in other words, if there's greater, mm -hmm. you're not saying live with good. And only just keep good and just focus on, well, at least I have this flower to smell. If you know there's the potential for more, is it better to stay with the one you have or take the chance for, <laughs> for more? Like, in other words, is it okay for a person to require more, to demand more, to want more and hope to experience that? Like, are you, are you saying that it's better just to say, okay, just deal with your simple gratitude and at least I have this? Or are you saying, I know there's more, I'm not going to just kill this or, you know, or just crush it or ignore my flower. I'm going to go, there's more flowers and I want to, mm -hmm. I want to continue to advance the garden because I just think mm -hmm. of like Maslow's you know, the, the, the needs, you know, these are, these are the needs of people that he 
you know, put out there for us to use as a, as a tool, I believe in a template to say, you know, if I, for, for me, if I have the choice between best and better, I choose better Mm -hmm. every time. It's never going to be just the best. And it's not because I'm unsatisfied. It's because I always believe there's more and I want to keep growing. So you're not saying though, just stick with, well, this is good and just find the good in something. What you're saying is find the good, use that for, you know, a while, but also believe mm-hmm. for more. And it, it, are you saying, well, which one are you saying there? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think I'm kind of, I think it's not either or. I think you need some of both. Um, so again, if you're always, you know, dissatisfied and you're always looking like you want something more and better, um, in one way, you know, it can be motivating and, and it can make you, you know, grow and strive to go after the better. But in another way, it can also exacerbate your stress because you, you can't sort of, you know, enjoy the achievements that you have, that you have. You can't enjoy your achievements. You can't be in the present. You're always looking for the next thing. So I think you need both. Um, I think you need to, you know, enjoy what you have and sort of find those states of peace, you know, and, you know, and just being able to just be present. Um, and enjoy what you have. But then I also think that's not contrary to also having another part of, you know, that you, at, at other times that you strive, you strive, you accept what you have and you strive for more. Um, I don't think they're necessarily contradictory, even though they appear to be, I don't think they are. It's like, what if you, if you know what you, you accept what you have for now, I suppose you could even say it like that. Enjoy what you have for now and keep going. Okay. No, that's, no, that's wonderful because I know, I mean, I, I literally met with someone today and that was their thing is I helped them understand that what they had, it was good enough. It really was. And so I do coaching and, Mm -hmm. and I sat with them and you know, the thing in which it's going to lead into this next question that we have for you, but it's, you know, your current condition doesn't match your emerging future. And they never will match. And if they do, then you're already done, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but there's more. So, but understand where you are first. And it's okay. Collect all the goodies out of there. Know what you have and know what you don't have. But mm-hmm. then also, you know, we're not in this world by ourselves. You know, it's. I told him, you know, I said, it's interesting. You know, we challenge, we we want all these things to be in our lives and we want these good lives, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. We want a great life. But the thing is, is that also there's a demand on us from the universe. (laughs) You know, we can't just expect the universe to come to us. So whether it's relational, whether it's the universe or whether it's the things that we do, we always have to be willing to put in more. One of my favorite authors, Napoleon Hill, says, you know, if you want to make $200 million, well, what's mm-hmm. your exchange for that $200 million? Right. What are you giving for that? Mm-hmm. And so when you bring people together and they are doing something together, it's the same thing. What are you willing to exchange? Mm-hmm. You know, it can't just be that one does and the other one receives. And it can't just be the other one gives and the other one, you know what I mean? It can't be, it just has to always be, how do we continue to build it? And how do we continue to grow it? So when I was speaking with him, that was one of the things that he said was, I taught him about the current condition, but the emerging future it was no longer a shiny thing. It was something that he began to experience. And mm-hmm. I, I like that. You can have both, you know, it's, it's the flower you have. 
and it's the flowers mm-hmm. that you know that you can grow. And it's not that you can just get because they're going to just mm-hmm. show up without your work and your effort and without some sort of involvement of someone else. Um, and taking risks and giving yeah, up something. And, yeah, yeah. And, and risks, you know, and vulnerability and lots of things like that. So I love that. I, I just think it's great that, you know, you can have, it's both. It's a mix of both. So um, that leads into this question. The show is Uphill Conversations. And what we like to say is everything worth having is uphill, but you can't go uphill with a downhill habit. And um, I'm not a cyclist. I don't, I don't, I mean, I'll ride a mountain bike or whatever, but I don't do like, cycling you know there's it's so popular nowadays people buy ten thousand dollar bikes and they're they're sitting in the garage <laughs> you know but but you know what i mean right. it's like but these guys that really do it like they ride a hundred miles you know on the weekends <laughs> you know there's they 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 push themselves and they climb and they push and they ride with groups and then they draft off each other and the drafting helps someone who's tired you know be able to get pulled you know with the team and then sometimes they have to take the lead and there's all these things and you have aches you have pains and sometimes you feel strong sometimes you feel weak but the whole thing is they continue to go and they know how to shift gears and they make changes and they learn constantly and then like in Tour de France they get a yellow jacket for that you know, if you win the hill, you get this ye- or yellow jersey. You get a yellow jersey for, you know, being first on this hill. So what uphill challenge have you had recently? Thinking about what I just shared with you that you've had to overcome and what did you do to overcome it? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, recently, I ex- last year, I expanded my work. My book came out in February. So... You know, I think one of the challenges was how to, you know, how to promote my book, how to get people interested in my book. And that involved really reaching out a lot, you know, to a lot of different people and shows. Um, But then I also um, started to do speaking as well, to do national speaking. And so that involved um, a lot of work, you know, like I was, I did like two day workshops and things like that. So you know, just trying to fit in all the work along with my family and my practice and often, you know, just trying to stay grounded despite working much harder, you know, than what I, than what I had before. And then also putting up with, you know, putting myself out there for feedback and, and, um, you know, the, just that, just getting up there and speaking, it takes a certain kind of courage. And so, and what helped me do it was just real passion for my goal this is something you know, I'd wanted to do for a long time. It was kind of, it was a dream. And then it was, you know, with, with the book and how well my book's been received, I think it gave me extra confidence. So I was able to, to put myself out there more. And, and I mean, I definitely can see how, I mean, that's a big thing. You know, you go from a person who you, you know, you have a practice, you've been working with people, but all of a sudden you're talking to thousands and thousands of people and everybody has an opinion. So, um, I can definitely understand how that would take a lot of courage. Um, and, and that's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Um, one other question that I, I would love to know about is, uh, what are three things that you are optimistic about and they can be personal or professional, um, over the next 12 months? So I'm optimistic, um, about continuing to grow my skills, um, 
in terms of my clinical work and to, you know, incorporate many like new new skills and perspectives in terms of my understanding of trauma. That's the direction that I'm going. And understanding of the parts of self and how we can work with the different parts of ourselves um, that may be in conflict sometimes. I'm optimistic about expanding my speaking and reaching a broader audience. And I'm optimistic about trying to find more balance and being being healthier and and increasing my energy through exercise and healthy eating and and nurturing myself. Well, Melanie, thank you uh, so much for all the time that you've spent with us today and just for being so open and um, sharing not only uh, your expertise, but also your opinion and a little bit more about yourself and your background. Uh, I know that our listeners are going to want to find you. So if you would, please let them know what is the best way to connect with you. Sure. So I have a website. It's um, dr, doctor, which is drmelaniegreenberg.com. So that's the best way because it's got everything there. It's got my book and my speaking and my clinical work and my coaching work. And you can contact me through the website or you can sign up for a mailing list where I have weekly newsletter, where I have you know tips and research-based tools and um, articles that I can send you. And then you could also buy my book, The Stress-Proof Brain, which is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and so on. And I have a blog for psychology today that I write, and it's called The Mindful Self-Express, self-express. And um, the blog has over 10 million page views. So that's another place to check out a lot of different articles on these topics. Um, so, Melanie, I just want to say I really like um, – I'm one of those, I like to talk about the mind, but I don't like them apart from like the real emotion and how you feel. Mm -hmm. And I can tell that you do that. And I just want you to know how much I appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I know yours is work, like it's a life's work and it's your investment of who you are. Um, I feel like I use it as much as I can. I, mm -hmm. I don't have the, the, you know, the education part. I mean, my education is the books. I read them constantly. Well, that's huge. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I just like how you bring them into relationship. And I just want you to know, I appreciate that because you can't have emotions without thinking and you can't have thinking without emotions. And we have to learn to bring those into relationship. And I can tell you do that. I've, you know, you know, just from this conversation, I'm sure um, it goes a lot further than what I'm, what we've experienced today. But I just want to say thank you for doing that because um, I think people need that because they feel relegated to one or the other in most cases. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Thank you so much. Well, you've been a great guest. And um, so uh, this has been another episode of Uphill Conversations. And um, we've had a great guest today, Miss Melanie Greenberg. And um, always remember, you can be more, do more, and have more. Most importantly, anything worth having is uphill. You cannot go uphill with downhill habits. And mm -hmm. just remember, you will see people like myself, Megan, and Melanie on the Hill. You've been listening to Uphill Conversations. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the show at uphillconversations.co. See you on the Hill.